Amen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're continuing our study through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Some of you may be quite relieved to hear that we've rounded a corner in this letter. He's been making a long argument for the first three chapters, and today we'll begin to discuss Paul's defense of his own ministry. He had been talking about the divisions, the the factions that were bubbling up in the church in Corinth, this young Greek church, and now he's defending his own work among them. The Corinthians were maligning Paul. He was weak. He was unimpressive. He was nothing special, and so they wanted to move past him. They were perhaps grateful for his initial work, thankful for what he had done at the beginning, but they've kind of outgrown him. They've moved on to more mature wisdom. They have more refined taste. They're more sophisticated, they think, than perhaps they used to be. But Paul, again, brings them in this passage back to the fundamental truths of the faith, truths related to who we are, to who God is, and what God has done. And this is significant because if we get any one of those things wrong, we will have all sorts of problems, as we'll see. We might be tempted to fear man rather than fearing God. Be tempted to be prideful and arrogant, to be anxious, to be worried, to be timid and fearful, unstable. Or we can even be depressed and discouraged. But Paul reminds us that the solution to these problems, all of these problems, is Christ. Christ is the great liberator, the great rescuer, the one who releases his people from slavery to sin and fear of condemnation and grants them not only pardon, but eternal rewards, which is a comfort to our souls. So let's read about this God and about the comfort that he gives in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of our Lord. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word for us. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we ask that you would speak. You were the one who spoke at the beginning of time and brought creation into existence. You have spoken through your Son, and we ask again by the power of your Holy Spirit and his ministry among us that you would speak through your word, that the words heard here today would not be mere human words, but they would be your truth, your words, that you would conform us more into the image of your Son, that you would mold us and make us. You are the potter, and we are the clay. Help us to come expectant, full of faith. In Christ's name, amen. In our text this morning, I'd like for us to notice three things about Paul. Three things that we could remember in these categories. His role, his judge, 
and his comfort. Paul's role, Paul's judge, and Paul's comfort. Let's look at the first two verses, and we notice Paul's role, specifically how Paul viewed his own role. He says in verse 1, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ. Older translations put it this way, ministers of Christ. And significantly, Paul does not here use the normal words that we would expect. He doesn't say we serve as ordinary bond servants or as slaves of Christ, doulos in Greek. Nor does he use the standard word that we all know for servant, diakonos, where we get deacon. In fact, he uses a different word, huperetas, which is derived from a term describing an under rower. That is a servant that would be down in the lower levels of a boat, below deck, out of sight, slaving away to row and move the vessel. Even more than a slave who's not only deep in the bowels of the ship and far from the Corinthian conception of leadership glory, this person is working away without being able to see the direction and progress of his labor. He's down in the boat. He's in the hole. He can't tell where the boat is going or how far they've been or how far yet they have to go. His job is to faithfully row, to faithfully obey, to quietly work without jockeying for a better position and to trust the leadership of the captain. That's his job. Far from the grand visions of top-down leadership with its glorious rhetoric being showered with the praise of men, Paul instead views his role and the role of all leaders as a role of humble servanthood, much of which is done out of the sight of the people that we serve. But he doesn't just describe his role as an under rower, he also uses the language of a steward. Again, verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is someone tasked with guarding and protecting something that belongs to someone else. He doesn't possess the rights of ownership. He merely safeguards whatever it is, whatever has been entrusted to him until the owner wants the item back. That's how Paul views himself, a steward. And significantly, we note, the steward does not possess. He's not the owner. He doesn't have full rights. He merely guards something that's valuable and stands in the place of the master, looking out for the best interests of the master in his absence. And of what has Paul been made a steward? He says the mysteries of God himself. And mystery here doesn't mean something vague and undiscernible or magical. When Paul speaks of a mystery, he speaks of something that was previously hidden or unclear, but now has been revealed. It's been brought into the light. He's talking about the message of the cross. He's talking about the gospel, the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. Paul is, and all ministry leaders are, stewards of a message, a particular message, and are thus called to steward that message with faithfulness. In one sense, in a very real sense, all Christians are called to speak the gospel with faithfulness and clarity, but pastors, ministry leaders in particular, must be faithful stewards of the mystery. We must be found faithful. It is not our message. We are not the owner of it. We, we can't tamper with it or adjust it or tweak it. We are stewards. We are not the master of the message. We can't shy away from preaching the hard text or unpleasant doctrines. It's not our message to adjust. 
All Christians and ministry leaders in particular are called to be servants, quietly rowing away in our areas of service. Also seeking to be faithful stewards, to be caretakers, to be ambassadors, the New Testament says. Carefully delivering a message of God's truth that has been entrusted to us. That's Paul's role and that's our role. We don't all serve in the same capacity. We're not all apostles like Paul. Not all of us are pastors or deacons. But we're each called to act as humble servants and faithful stewards of the responsibilities and the authority that we have been granted in this life. But if we take a moment to reflect, we're not usually so noble in our view of our roles, are we? If we think hard and reflect upon our lives, we tend to either exaggerate and overestimate our importance, the importance of our role and our contribution, or to demean our role. We flatter ourselves as indispensable ones, or we debase ourselves as meaningless. Have you ever noticed that? that temptation within you. For example, sometimes we think that our work, that our presence, that our importance is the crucial cog that keeps the whole system running. Because of our pride, we get a little Messiah complex and we believe that we're the ones that have to do everything or that have to direct everyone else. If I don't do it, it just won't get done right, we may tell ourselves. An attitude like that leads to all sorts of problems. We usually get impatient with others and we speak unkindly when they're not doing things the way we told them to do them. Maybe we view our role a little differently. We have such an inflated view of ourselves that we become a little overly sensitive. We take everything, every comment, every interaction as a personal attack. If someone voices an opinion that's anything other than complete agreement and praise of our work, then we see them as a backstabbing traitor or at least as an obstacle who's impeding our progress. If someone suggests that I even do something differently, then I might get offended because they're questioning my intelligence. Who do they think they are? Hypersensitivity related to one's role is a sure sign of pride. But the pendulum can swing the other direction too. Pride can make us either overinflate our view of ourselves or it can tempt us to demean ourselves and our role. Pride and the devil can tempt us to think that because we aren't the ones in the spotlight, our work is meaningless. Just because I'm not the one serving in a public capacity, just because I'm working quietly behind the scenes, just because nobody sees or notices what I'm doing, therefore my work must be worthless. That's what the world tells you. That's what Satan wants you to think. The world wants you to think that all forms of service are slavery. They're worthless. The world tells you that if a woman isn't serving in the same way as a man, then she isn't equal and she's demeaned, which is a lie from Satan. Likewise, the world wants you to think that you're not important if you're not the one on top. You're not meaningful unless you're calling the shots. You don't really matter unless you're on the stage, unless you're in the spotlight. But all this is rubbish. It's wrong for multiple reasons, and I'll give you two. First, this is wrong because it's the opposite of how the kingdom of God works. Christ makes clear the logic of his kingdom is upside down from the world's logic. The world says that those who are on top are the ones that matter. Christ says the first will be last. 
The world says that those serving quietly and selflessly are just doormats being trampled upon. But Christ says those that are last in this world will be the first in the kingdom of heaven. Those who desire to be greatest in the kingdom must make themselves to be like children, like slaves even, serving for the sake of another. They must be willing to become nothing, Christ says, for the sake of loving others in the name of Christ. The world's perspective of service is the opposite of the logic of God's kingdom. But secondly, the worldly perspective which demeans our various roles is wrong because it forgets the who and the why of our role. The world gives value to your role and your service, your effort, your labor, based upon who sees it. How many views you have? How many likes you have? That's only partially right. The problem is that they give emphasis to the wrong set of eyes. The value of our service doesn't ultimately come from who sees our work in this world. The value of our service stems from it being devoted to Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 1, servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. It's God who grants the ultimate meaning and value to our work. If we're serving Him, if our heart is oriented towards Him, then our work is of value, whatever the work may be. If you're caring for children and you're changing day after day terrible diapers that no one ever else will see or smell, but you're doing it for Him, then your work is of value and is seen by God. If you're laboring for decades in your prayer closet without ever seeing any tangible fruit in this world, then be encouraged that your Father in Heaven sees you and will reward you accordingly. Jesus said so in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're slaving away at what feels like a dead-end job and you've got a frustrating boss and you see little return for your labor, then be encouraged that God is honored through your faithful service, even if you don't see earthly fruit. Whatever our areas of responsibility, we must be careful to avoid those two pitfalls of pride, either over-inflating our importance or demeaning our value and our work is nothing. Whatever we do, we must remember that we're servants. We are not the master. But lest we demean ourselves as mere slaves, we remember who our master is. It's God himself. And by remembering that, we, that all we do is done in his name, then we can be encouraged that all of our work, even the unseen and the thankless work, all of our work is of eternal significance, even if the world judges it to be useless. That leads to our second point from verses 3 and 4, where we can see Paul's judge. Paul's judge. Verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. And then in fact, I, I do not even judge myself. Paul's here making clear three parties who are not his judge. It's not the Corinthians who can act as, as his judge. They thought that they were the wise ones. They thought they were the, the sophisticated ones who could look down on Paul for his ungainly appearance and his unimpressive speech. But they were wrong. Their prideful condescension was exactly the evidence that proved their unsuitability to be Paul's judge. But Paul also lists human courts as unfit to be his judge. No worldly system, no worldly party, no worldly group, no matter how noble or virtuous, 
is ever fit to judge spiritual faithfulness. Indeed, as Paul has already said in chapter 2, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. Thus, it's inconceivable that any human court could judge in matters of spiritual fidelity. But Paul goes even further in verse 4 and says he does not even judge himself. His flawed and limited perspective, his weak vantage point is insufficient to rightly judge the value of even his own labor. Only God can see the whole picture. He's the only one who can rightly and impartially judge. He alone is unswayed by external realities and worldly pressures. He alone is perfect in discernment and good in all his dealings. And brothers and sisters, God's role as the only judge in our lives is a significantly encouraging and liberating reality, one that we are very quick to forget. Consider this. If God's is the only opinion that has ultimate significance in my life, then I am liberated from terrible slavery to the fear of men. I don't have to fret and worry every time somebody doesn't like me and says something mean to me. They aren't my judge. If I haven't sinned, then I have no reason to be anxious of their opinion of me, because God is my judge and the master of my conscience, not men. Likewise, if God is my judge and not men, then I don't have to be a nervous wreck about my reputation and my standing. A reputation is important, for sure. Scripture makes clear that a good name is to be prized more than jewels. But if God is my judge, then the world can hate me And I can still sleep at night. To use older language, if I have the smile of God, then it is no matter to me if I have the world's frown. God is my judge, not the world, not any human court, not even my own limited and fallible conscience. And how is it, Pastor, that I can say that It is a joyfully good thing to call God my judge. Judge sounds like a terrible, a dreadful thing. And to attribute judge to a God who is love seems almost like a sacrilege. Well, I tell you that viewing God as our judge is a comfort because I know what the Bible says, specifically about Christ. See, the Bible says that we are all born with a problem. We are separated from God, and we have a criminal record overflowing with capital offenses against a holy judge and his holy law. But there was another born, and his record was clean. He had no offenses, and his history was spotless. Christ came and perfectly fulfilled the law of God, which otherwise had only condemned the entire human race. And then this Christ went willingly to the cross, and he stood in the place of sinful humanity before the judge of all the world. And the unbelievable happened. Christ endured in the place of sinful men. He bore the punishment of death that men deserved. And God judged Christ in the place of his people. We were granted Christ's clean criminal history, and our sentence of death was executed upon him. That's the great exchange of the gospel. Sinners are exonerated because Christ was judged. And God's judgment of sin in Christ was done once and for all. That's good news. 
I have been declared not guilty. I have been declared righteous. I have been justified. I have been granted the sentence of eternal life rather than a life, an eternal life in hell. An eternity with God is what I've been given as my sentence. That's the good news of the judgment of God, of God. My sins have already been judged in Christ. And my failings have already been dealt with at Calvary. Nothing is left for me to earn. And nothing is left to condemn me to hell. I've been set free because another was judged in my place. If you're trusting in Christ, then be encouraged that you've been judged not guilty because of the sacrifice of Christ in your place. God has removed your sentence of death and you have been declared righteous and adopted no matter what the world tells you, no matter what your conscience may tell you. The truth is that Christ has borne the penalty. If you are in Christ, you are free indeed. And the only true judge has declared you to be my beloved. Don't go back to the desperation of trying to please men. Don't go back to pandering for their approval and the praise of fallen creatures. Don't submit yourself again to the yoke of slavery, to the never-ending hamster wheel of trying to please everybody else. Think long and hard about what God's judgment of you in Christ means. And be encouraged by the liberating truth of Christ being sentenced in your place. But if you're not trusting in Christ today, then I warn you that God's role as judge should categorically frighten you. You have no legal covering for your sin. You have no atonement to grant you a not guilty verdict. You will be exposed. That's part of what Paul says in verse 5. God will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. God sees the innermost reaches of our hearts. God knows the twisted and selfish motives. God sees the dark thoughts and the depraved impulses. God's vision is not obscured by a polished exterior or deflecting good works. Scripture says he will not be mocked. And on the basis of these things, I urge you to see your sin and see God as judge and run. Run away from your sin and run into the only hope of salvation you can have, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can take care of your problem, which is sin and guilt. You can, he can free you from enslavement to sin because He has defeated sin and death in the cross. He's overcome the power of sin, which is death, by His own resurrection from the grave. The worst thing that the world can throw at Him could not subdue Him. His power and His purity have been demonstrated when He walked out of the tomb on the third day and later ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But not only can you be free from enslavement to sin, He too can free you from the guilt of sin. You see, guilt and fear, fear of condemnation, is what drove Adam and Eve to hide in the bushes after they sinned against God. And fear of condemnation, likewise, paralyzes many of us today. But the good news is that Christ liberates us from the the guilt of sin and the fear of condemnation because He bore the wrath of all of His people on the cross. You see, they cannot be condemned again for something already judged at Calvary. I'm going to repeat that because it's very important. You cannot be condemned again for sin that he has already judged in Christ. There is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. No more condemnation. 
That's the joy that a Christian can have. A joy that no court and no judge and no man can ever steal. Joy that is rock solid because they know there's no possibility of God looking at you and saying, guilty. He's already judged it. It would be unjust of God to put the sin on Christ at Calvary and then hold you in contempt for it. And God is not an unjust judge. That joy frees us. It helps us sleep at night. It frees us from the fear of man. It liberates us from enslavement to man's opinion. And you can have that joy. Trust in Christ today. And you can have that joy regardless of who you are or what you've done. No one's too old to experience this joy. Nobody is too far gone. Nobody's record is too long. No sinner is too corrupted. Christ has borne the worst of sinful man's guilt on the cross. And his righteousness is powerful enough to make the vilest of sinners clean. What more could you want from a Savior? What is lacking from Christ's work as a Redeemer? What reason could you have to reject the offer of grace extended to you in Scripture? Trust in Christ today. Believe today. And you too can embrace the joy of having a judge. The judge of the whole universe. Declare you to be not guilty. As Paul's judge had done of him. Third, and finally, we've seen Paul's role and we've seen Paul's judge. Now let's look at verse 5 and see Paul's comfort. Paul's comfort. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul here urges the Corinthians not to judge him prematurely, not to judge his ministry. In their pride, the Corinthians were writing Paul off. Paul wasn't flashy. He wasn't attractive. He wasn't winsome in the eyes of the world. His ministry was rather plain. He just talked about Jesus and the cross a lot. He didn't have any bells and whistles. He wasn't going to attract the world into the church. And so they... Concluded, they judged that he was inferior. But Paul warns them not to judge too soon. Don't judge a ministerial book by its cover, so to speak. See, the people of God can be tempted to judge their leaders as if the congregation is the one who is ultimately responsible to adjudicate matters of faithfulness. That's misinformed. It is true that while the scripturally bound congregation is the highest earthly authority in the church, the church and the church is called to proper judgment of the character and work of a man, God himself is the final judge. God will be the ultimate arbiter of ministerial success and faithfulness. God is judge, as we discussed earlier, and this judge will expose what is currently hidden. God will investigate. He will make clear that which is currently masked and cloudy. And then Paul concludes this section with, then each one will receive his commendation from God, or we could translate it, each one will receive his praise from God. The main point Paul is making here is that the Corinthian evaluation of his ministry was on the basis of a worldly standard of success. Paul instead is urging the Corinthians to remember that God is the final judge and God judges faithfulness, not fruitfulness. The world judges according to the outward appearance, but God judges the heart. 
And this, again, is a great encouragement to us related to what I said earlier about rewards. God sees the heart of a man, and he will commend him according to his faithful labor, not according to the fruitfulness. And so for a minister, this is a great relief. I will be commended based upon the things that I can control and not the things that I cannot. I will be judged according to my faithfulness to the task of preaching the word with faithfulness and with prayer, not according to the number of converts that are made. Not according to the number of baptisms that come. But as a Christian, this news is encouraging as well. You will be commended based upon your faithfulness in your role. Not according to the fruitfulness of your ministry. Going back to the, the language of the preceding chapter. We are called to faithfully plant, to sow, and to water. But only God can give the growth. We're called to faithfully instruct, to faithfully parent and shepherd, to faithfully serve, but we trust the results of that service to God. He's the one we trust with the results, and we can sleep at night trusting that God will reward faithfulness, even if we don't see the fruit in this life. God sees your prayers. He sees your sleepless nights up with the baby. He sees your striving in prayer. He sees your tearful pleading. He sees your diligent plotting day in and day out in the Christian life. And He will commend you for it. Not because your works are perfect. Not because you're, you're so great and wonderful. Remember that Paul views this whole section under the banner of, I'm a servant of Christ. Paul's not so wonderful that he's earned the commendation and the eternal rewards for his awesomeness. God's grace has done it all. But we can be further encouraged that God's grace overflows even to us. Even to us being drafted as servants in his kingdom. Even to us being under rowers in his great vessel. Who share in the joy of the labor and who will taste of the gracious rewards and the blessed commendation of the Father. Just as Christ heard from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So too will we hear the words of our Father in heaven who will express his good pleasure in us and will commend us for our labors and faithfulness in this life. May we all press on in the faith, encouraged that God sees our work and that he will commend us accordingly in due time. That was Paul's comfort, and that can be our comfort as well. Amen. We get to conclude this morning by celebrating both our Savior and our unity together by breaking bread at the Lord's table. This great picture of our salvation, the body broken and the blood shed for the founding of God's new temple and for the liberation of God's people is a picture that is before us again. A picture that declares for us the fact that sin has been judged. The sin that was on us has been judged at the cross. And that God's people have been declared not guilty because of Christ's sacrifice in their place. If you were like the people of God described in Acts 2, that is, you're devoted to the apostles' teaching, now found in God's Word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, then we invite you to join us at the table. But if that does not describe you, if you are not united with Christ by faith, then let the plates pass. Come to Christ by faith, be baptized, and then join us at the table. I will pray, and then I'll ask our servants to come. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our judge. 
and that you have judged us in Christ as not only being not guilty, but as being righteous. Father, encourage us, lift us up, spur us on in holiness by this visible picture of the gospel. Take these elements and set them apart to make us a new holy temple. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.